Welcome to the Marie Manu Cherry Show, where energy and medicine meet. I will be your host for the next hour. I have over 19 years of healthcare experience and began my career as an energy medicine practitioner while working as an oncology nurse at a Seattle area hospital. My skill in moving energy combined with my medical background have been a catalyst for change in many people's lives. I hope the next hour will be transformative for you as well. Hello and welcome to the Remenu Cherry Show. We're live here in gorgeous, sunny, stunning Seattle. We hope it's beautiful wherever you are. Of course it is, whether it's daylight, nighttime, winter, um, or stepping into fall like we are. It's so crisp in the morning. Ooh, it's just I don't know really about beautiful. stepping. We're flirting. With it. <laughs> We're flirting. We're with flirting fall? with fall. I like it's that. A new, it's the new adage. I, I like the flirt. That's mm-hmm. cool. I'm yeah. not sure you do. <laughs> Who does it? Yeah, that's great. And of course, today is September 11th, mm-hmm. um, and a day that at least I think many Americans are, are fresh in their mind of waking up hours earlier. You know, to news that we had um, violence in our country. Um, that wasn't perpetu- perpetuated by Americans. <laughs> you know? um, so today I actually had a lovely time listening to some family members talking about their loved ones mm-hmm. who had died in the Twin Towers. And it was really quite beautiful. What both of them said, and they were, one was a woman, one was a man who was recounting their, their partners. Mm-hmm. And um, they both reflected on their eyes, how they missed their eyes so much. I thought that was really beautiful. That's that's deep. Yeah, it's it was intense. really beautiful. That's intense. It's, well, you know the soul. I, the I, the I soul. completely understand. And it, <laughs> yeah. but, but coming from that angle is, is yeah, it was really and to gorgeous. hear it, especially when well, they've had has, some time, there, you know, they've right? had some time. And so then they can reflect on what they yeah. thought was most important or sure. what deeply affected them. And of course, on a day like today, I like to send peace throughout the world, you know, not just our own nation, but to the world mm-hmm. um, so that we decrease our violence and our crime, terrorism, however you want to describe it. Um, wherever we are, wherever we live, that we begin to step in or flirt, if you will, with peace um, and let it ring in all of our hearts. Um, So, And interesting enough, I'm interviewing an an author who wrote the book Waking the Buddha, really quite a lovely book, Clark Strand. He's He's a spiritual explorer raised in Southern Presbyterian. He was on the verge of becoming an abbot for a Zen Buddhist monastery when he realized he wasn't happy. Years of psychoanalysis followed, after which he became the first senior editor of Tricycle, the Buddhist Review, um, a position which brought him into intimate contact with virtually every school of Buddhism in Asia and the West. In the early 1990s, he embarked on a 20-year odyssey through the spiritual traditions of the world in reach of religion 4.0. I'm not sure what that means. I can't wait to find out. A newer, more spiritually evolved version of religion that was fully compatible with the realities of modern life. And so... uh, Waking the Buddha is how the most dynamic and empowering Buddhist movement in history is changing our concept of religion. So welcome to the show, Clark. Thanks very much, Marie. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's lovely to have you. So you did become, though, a Buddhist monk at one point. Is that correct? Yes, I did. I, uh, I had heard a little bit about Buddhism when I was in high school, growing up down south in Atlanta, and uh, then in uh, 1977, summer of 1977, I had a kind of a, a spontaneous spiritual opening. And I happened to have been reading a book on Zen when it happened. It was a very, really a life-changing experience. It wasn't predicated by anything. I had no preparation. I had no spiritual practice, nothing. It just sort of happened on its own. But after that, you know, I sort of felt no choice but to embark on a spiritual quest because the the effects of that experience lasted two or three weeks, but when it was over, it was over, and I was left 
sort of, you know, adrift, you know, wanting to get that back. And so, uh, you know, I went off to a Zen monastery, studied there, uh, came back to college, finished college, uh, taught, you know, high school for a while, but eventually ended up back at the monastery, which is sort of where I always, you know, I was going to be. Mm. Uh, so I did become a Zen Buddhist monk and a teacher. But at a certain point, around 1990, I, I, uh, I could actually remember the exact moment because I was about to go downstairs in the temple and lead a retreat and give a talk. And I looked in the mirror, and I had a shaved head, an impressive set of robes, and I didn't look anything at all like myself. And um, it was quite startling, you know, a moment like that. I'd spent all of my adult life working towards uh, becoming a Zen master, and at the very moment when that was imminent, uh, you know, suddenly I, I, I didn't want it, and it didn't feel right, so I wow. left. That must have been shocking, you know, when it's your goal, and and it takes a lot of devotion, dedication, change of lifestyle, you know, to reach this ominous position, and then there you are looking in the mirror, and you don't recognize yourself. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a really, it, it was a strange, strange moment, and I couldn't have predicted it coming. I mean, I'd been unhappy uh, for, for some months uh, prior to that, but I hadn't been, really been able to uh, you know, to locate the source of my, my unhappiness. But I think ultimately it boils down to the fact that I was following a religious model uh, that uh, led me in the direction of, of looking less and less like myself the further I get, got into it. And I really wanted something that, ideally I wanted a spiritual path that uh, the further I got along, you know, on it, the more I looked and felt like myself, Right. And uh, but I didn't know that until I experienced its opposite. You know, you don't oftentimes, you know, on a spiritual path, you, you don't know what you're looking for or what you really want until you found what you don't want. Yeah, <laughs> right. And and really, life in general, you know, it's like that's part of the whole process is trying it on. You know, does this feel good? Do that's I like right. It? I have kids in college right now, and they're going through that exact same thing now. <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's, just a, it's a part of growing up, I think. It is. It's a wonderful part. Do you think, though, that your your practice, your Buddhist practice of meditation and self-reflection helped you to be able to be aware in that moment that, oh, my gosh, uh, maybe I don't want this? Well, you know, not exactly. Uh, it's an interesting thing. And, you know, if you, if you look at the recent uh, literature in magazines and newspapers in America right now, uh, about meditation, like if you Google, you know, I don't know, uh, mindfulness meditation and stuff like that, you'll find in the New York Times, uh, you know, the Salon Slate, all over the place, including my uh, alma mater, Tricycle Buddhist Review, where I served as senior editor in the 90s, you'll find articles that are basically saying that meditation is not the uh, one-click fix that everybody thought it was, you know, mm-hmm. in the 70s and 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, you can, you know, spend a lot of time on the meditation cushion and gain no personal insight whatsoever into yourself. I completely so, agree. Anything, yeah, yeah I, I think if anything, that, you know, Americans, uh, you know, in particular, uh, you know, use medication almost as a kind of, um, I mean, not all Americans, but many Americans use it as a kind of, uh, I don't know, self-medication yeah, almost. like a sedation. And so you can hide Bigger pardon? Like a sedation. It's uh, that's right. Some that's people right. think, and that certainly was the way I did it. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't know yeah. that. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't just that. And I learned a lot, and I cultivated the ability to quiet and still my mind. But finally, I discovered that's not enough. Right. 
Yeah, I, I always think of meditation as it's 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 a multiple experience. It's a multisensory experience, and so when right. you're shutting right. down, then yeah. you're falling asleep in a way. Right, you're not awake. That's right. So you write in your book, um, in the chapter, The Flame of Reform, you, you talk about religion in general, which is really, you know, although you talk about a certain sect of Buddhism, which, of course, we're going to be talking about today, because it's fascinating and interesting, that really began in the 13th century, quite a long time ago. But you talk about how religion usually grows out of some revolutionary impulse, you, you know, that's supposed to have some new ideas that aren't necessarily popular and and there's a strife and suffering that occurs while the religion, you know, gains some roots and followers. And then it kind of goes to sleep after that. Once it really gets established, it, the religion stops its ori- original idea of evolution for humanity. Yes, that's exactly right. That's the reason for the title of, of, uh, of the book, Waking the Buddha. There's this idea that, uh, yeah, I mean, when you, when you say, you know, something like Waking the Buddha, most people's reaction is, well, why? Isn't the Buddha already awake? That's the whole idea, right? Mm-hmm. But if you think of the Buddha in terms of Buddhism, really we could have called the book, the book, or we could have called the book Waking Buddhism, okay? But that didn't have quite the same punch. <laughs> so, but the idea is that the, a, a religion is a, especially in its early years, is a, a deep, heartfelt response to uh, the, the troubles and trials and sufferings of, of a, a group of people, sometimes a very large group of people. And it, it works, and it spreads quickly and takes root because it works, and it addresses the needs of the people uh, you know, at that time. But unfortunately, it seems to be, I mean, there are a couple of things that seem to be almost hardwired into religion, or at least the religion we know today. And uh, one of them is, you know, what you might call a kind of a, a, a caste system, right, of experts or priests. Uh, and, and so you have that. You have this, this kind of approach to religion that's based on uh, the general population being told what to believe or how to practice or what the requirements of the faith are by some sort of a priest, priestly or monastic elite. Okay, and those people pride themselves on being awake, but in fact, you know, the further you go along, you know, the less awake they are, because they're also kind of on autopilot. The other problem is that that system tends to be patriarchal, and so by its very nature, uh, it is geared to serve two groups of people better than anyone else, and those groups are, it's, it's briefly or it's monastic elite and men. And so uh, the further it gets along, the less it serves the people it was originally supposed to serve. It becomes sleepy in the sense that it no longer is really connected to the reality of the people who, who needed the religion in the, in the first place and presumably still need it in order to improve the quality of their lives and relieve the sufferings that, that people uh, you know, have to cope with you know, just by virtue of being alive. Does that make sense? Yeah, uh, absolutely, yeah. And and so there's a sect of Buddhism um, that actually has been gaining followers, and, and I'm not a Buddhist, um, so I, I don't really know that much about the faith, just probably general things that most people know about Buddhism. Um, and uh, and actually they have now over 12 million members, um, and That's which right. has been growing over the last 100 years spe- specifically. Um, and I believe the pronunciation is Soka Gaki International? 
It's actually Soka Gakkai International. Yeah, it means uh, Value Creation Society. And it started uh, in the 1930s in Tokyo, uh, and basically during the build-up to World War II. And its leaders were educators. And uh, the first president was a man named Fensaburo Makaguchi, who uh, came to Buddhism actually late in life after he had already struggled against uh, uh, a, a very sort of, you know, callous, unfeeling educational system, which I guess you'd call the Tokyo Public School Education System, uh, which basically, you know, treated um, kids like, you know, children like little bases to be filled up with information. Okay, everything was by rote. There was very, uh, very sort of severe discipline imposed on them. And he said, this really isn't right. It isn't teaching kids what they need to know. It isn't teaching them how to create value in their lives. It isn't, uh, you know, it's a kind of a top-down model of telling them what they ought to know, how they ought to feel, how they ought to behave, what they ought to believe, rather than a bottom-up model of drawing right from the stuff of life itself, including their nature and their immediate environment and their town and their uh, their culture, uh, you know, the things that they need to know to, to live, live a, a really happy and fulfilling life. And so he rebelled against that. Uh, he was on kind of a collision course with the forces of militarism because uh, at one point uh, they asked him to swear allegiance on the Shinto amulet. And basically what that meant was that he was endorsing uh, the emperor as you know, as a kind of god and the leader of the Japanese people, endorsed the military effort. He refused to do it because he didn't believe in it. You know, here were the the young children that he had taught just a few years before being put in kamikaze uh, planes and and being asked to man one-way submarines that were basically torpedoes, where they were just going to you know plow themselves into the side of the U.S. battleship, and uh, he wouldn't do it. And so he went to prison along with his uh, his uh, uh, protege, a man named Jose Toda, who became the second president of Tokugakai. And they went to prison at a time when most of the other Buddhists, really just about every other Buddhist sect uh, in Japan, was capitulating and joining the war effort and endorsing it. They were they were melting down their their temple bells to to make bombs. So. Tsutsuburo uh, Masabuchi died in prison as a result of harsh inter- interrogation, but Koda came out. And when he came out, he was like the last Buddhist left standing. And all most Japanese people needed to hear uh, when they heard about the Sokogakai was that its leaders had resisted the war. And a lot of people converted on the basis of that alarm because they had seen all the things that can go wrong when, re- when uh, uh, life is made to serve religion rather than uh, requiring religion to serve life. And that was really the bottom line. Sokogakai spread incredibly fast because it was this new model of religion. It said that religion has to serve life. It has to serve the happiness of individuals. It shouldn't be used to justify war. It shouldn't be used to drive planes into, into office buildings. Uh, it shouldn't be used uh, to justify ex- executions or racism or classism or sexism. It should be used to celebrate the life uh, in each individual, and that life is fundamentally the same in each individual, regardless of race, you know, caste, uh, national origin. Consequently, you end up in this form of Buddhism that can travel anywhere, and basically did, because by the year 2000, it spread all around the world. 
So this is really basically the story. It's really a relatively new religion. Um, I guess what I got confused about is because the chanting, which we'll talk about when we when we come back from a break, comes from a 13th century um, information and language that's very popular in the Buddhist faith. So I'm having the pleasure of interviewing Clark Strand. He is the author of Walking the Buddha. Strand has founded and led spiritual study groups, taught workshops and retreats, lectured at colleges and universities, both in America and Japan, and has spoken at some of the largest Buddhist gatherings ever held in America. We're going to take a break right now. We'll be right back. Join Marie in Portland, Oregon for two energy healing book talks and a healing workshop. The first book talk is on Thursday, October 2nd at 7 p.m. at New Renaissance Bookshop. The second book talk is on Friday, October 3rd at 7 p.m. at Ohm Base Yoga Studio. Then on Saturday, October 4th, Marie will return to Ohm Base to teach a four-hour workshop on connecting to guidance and deepening your relationship with the universe. For more information and to register, visit the events page at at energyintuitive.com. Hi, my name's Travis, and I'm your host of the Create the Life You Want show, airing Saturdays at 1 p.m. Pacific on Alternative Talk 1150. Each week, we will explore our collective experiences and dive deep into all aspects of our being. Every show will provide topics, insight, guidance, and techniques designed to empower your life. I'll be taking calls, answering questions, and using my psychic insight to provide you with opportunities to access your own unique abilities to create abundance in your life right now. It's all about you on the Create the Life You Want show. Join me Saturdays at 1 on Alternative Talk 1150. My grades were bad. I would, like, get D's and C's. I appeared to be doing good at my school life, but if you would see me at home, it would have been a completely different story. I mean, it was just rough focusing on school when your mother is somebody you have to take care of. It just it got worse and worse and worse throughout the years. There are students who need somebody. They can trust someone, and it could be the first person they've ever trusted in their life. Communities and Schools is lowering America's dropout rate by helping more than 1.3 million kids every year get whatever they need to succeed in school. If something was going on at home, we would go just stop by Miss Liberty's office and talk to her. Communities and Schools vouched for me when everyone else had lost hope. You can help change the picture of education right here in your community and across the nation. Visit communitiesandschools.org. I hear people say we can't save every kid, but I think that we can. Manifesting dreams into reality is meant to be exciting and easy. When the tools you use stop working, a lack of self-worth is most likely holding you back. Marie's Affirm Your Worth cards are the perfect solution to increase self-appreciation while magnetizing your dreams into reality in a nurturing and fun way. Order the Affirm Your Worth cards online at energyintuitive.com or call 425-825-5671. 1150kknw.com. It's why they invented the internet. We think. Alternative Talk, 1150 AM. Beautiful, that's for sure. You'll never, ever fade. You're lovely. And welcome back to the Remanu Cherry Show. You know, um, and welcome back, Clark Strand, who's the author of Waking the Buddha. One of my favorite things is manifesting. I, I think it's such an important part of life. 
And, and that's really one of the core concepts of the SGI, this interesting um, newer sect, as you said, of an old religion um, that, you know, manifesting for themselves, you know, happiness and fulfillment and health and even material possessions, but also helping to manifest for the world at large. Right. They have a thing they call practice for oneself and others, and that's really, you know, central to the belief and practice of Tokugakai International. They they chant twice daily uh, passages from the Lotus Sutra and the Daimoku, or great title of the Lotus Sutra, nam myoho rinke kyo And by uh, doing this chant, they activate the forces uh, within them and outside of them. Uh, to uh, lead their lives in the direction of, of, of greater prosperity and, and happiness. Uh, but there's no such thing as, uh, you know, what you would call a kind of a, a, a selfish or, or self-centered practice in the Sokogaka. It's very uh, social, very dynamic. Right. Uh, their meetings, it's a lot like, you know, a 12-step spirituality <laughs> because, you know, it's not something you do alone or you even can do alone. Right. Uh, no one who joins the Sokogakai expects to do it alone. It's not a, a solitary meditative pursuit, you know, or anything like that. Uh, but, um, and there's an emphasis in the Sokogakai on what they call actual proof. And this goes all the way back to the founder of Nishiren Buddhism, uh, a 13th century uh, uh, Buddhist monk named Nishiren. And Nishiren believed that you should put Buddhism to the test. And this is, this is really the origin of this model of religion serving life rather than life being required to serve religion. Because Nishiren taught his, uh, his followers to chant nam myoho ringe kyo with the idea that they were going to awaken the Buddhahood within them and therefore manifest uh, the, the pure land uh, right here and right now, not in some future life. Many Buddhists at that time believed that they would uh, chant to Amida Buddha and be reborn in a pure land after death, which was a place where it would be relatively easy to become happy uh, because there were no defilements in that land and there were no obstacles to enlightenment. And Nishiren said, basically, the only you know obstacles to enlightenment or to happiness in this life are the ones that, that you fail to challenge, that the ones that you fail to uh, chant your way through. And so he really redefined the, the central tenet of Buddhism. He didn't replace it. He redefined it. Originally, it was said by Shakyamuni that life is suffering. That was the first noble truth. You won't find in Nishiren's writing any place that he explicitly states the idea that life is a struggle instead of life is suffering, but it's implicit to all of his teachings. So what he's saying basically is that He's not saying life is suffering, therefore the only real alternative is either to, you know, pray to be reborn in a pure land where life isn't suffering, or to become a monk or a nun and renounce the world, so you basically leave behind the world of desire. Nishrin said, life is a struggle, and you can engage meaningfully in that struggle, and as you do that, you're gradually going to become happier, and your life is going to become better, because instead of running away from life, you're reaching out to embrace it, you're accepting it, you're working with it, and you're learning what it means to be human and what it means to, to love the world and, and everyone and every else, everything else in it, even if you have to struggle against some of those things and some of those people. 
that make sense? Yeah. What I find also very fascinating, too, is that the, the members or the people who practice these techniques, the chanting, if you will, they mm-hmm. actually, it really helps their life tremendously. They accomplish a lot of goals oh, that they yeah. set out to. Oh, yeah. They become you, you prosperous. You go to any meeting, and that's, yeah. the, that's the whole text of the meeting is, you know, the benefits that the members, uh, you know, have have gotten from, from the practice. You know, right. that's, that's the bread and butter of every meeting. I mean, p- people will talk about their challenges and the difficulties they're facing, you know, and there's a great deal of, uh, you know, Members who are going through a hard time get a great deal of support and encouragement uh, from the other members. But the basic text is, it's a little bit like, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the book Alcoholics Anonymous, sometimes called the big book by AA members, and used, I think, is pretty much the, you know, the basic text for all 12-step fellowships all over the world, whether they have anything to do with alcoholism or not. That, the stories in that book, basically, you know, follow a single pattern. It's like, you know, what my life was like then, what happened, and what it's like now. And that's the same kind of uh, story that you hear over and over again at Soko Gakkai meetings. You typically have somebody who's come to the practice because they faced some sort of a life challenge that they weren't sure they could overcome. They heard about Nishiran Buddhism or were told about it by a family member or a friend, usually. They go to a meeting. They figure out that they can uh, chant, and that by chanting they can act, activate the, the strength and the uh, inspiration within them that they need in order to overcome this challenge. And they can also activate forces in the universe itself to help them along their way yeah, and I to love manifest that part. greater, greater yeah. happiness and prosperity. I, I think and that's... so they change, and their lives become, you know, gradually, you know, sort of day by day, sometimes very dramatically at the beginning, their lives get a lot better. So you have people at these meetings who have incredible stories to tell. Right. I think that's such a beautiful concept for anything that we may call religion, you know, that instead of feeling bad about ourselves or that we have done harm, you know, from the moment we were born or all these other beliefs that, you know, that we're really believing in this universal power Um, that allows us to create and heal and move forward in our lives. And to witness that in other people collectively, I think, is an extremely powerful experience. And you're not an SGI member. So, you know, even though you've written this book. No, no, I'm not. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, I'm not. Actually, say the the Catholic rosary, even though I'm not Catholic. (laughs) (laughs) You take a little bit uh, of everything, do you, and kind of put it together? Well, yeah, I actually started started a rosary fellowship called Way of the Rose. People can find it on, on Facebook and join the group. But I started uh, that group after I'd studied the, the Sokodakai for some years. The rosary has always, you know, or for many years has been my sort of first love. I'm not Catholic. I wasn't raised Catholic and have no desire to be a Catholic. But I love Mary and I love the rosary. And so, but the, our meetings basically function like an SGI meeting. You know, there's no sense in reinventing the wheel. And when I saw this new model of religion, I thought, wow, this, this could work for all kinds of, of different practices and all kinds of different settings. And so I kind of, uh, I kind of adapted it. But one thing I wanted to say about the Sokogakai and their, their approach, it's not a, what my friend, you know, the Sokogakai aren't what my friend Susan Saxman, she's a psychic, her book, uh, 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 The Reluctant Psychic, will be coming out in, in uh, January from uh, St. Martin's. They're not what, they're not what uh, Susan calls bliss minis. Okay, they're not like sort of the white light uh, people who, you know, 
say it's all joy and happiness and, and uh, there's no you know darkness or evil in the world. They don't believe in original sin because that idea would be self-limiting, right? right. It's like you implied, I think, but that, that just drags you down and you know you can't get out from underneath an idea that you were born sinful and right. you know all of life is just repentance. They don't have that. But they do recognize something they call the fundamental darkness. And this is a, a force uh, of ignorance, I guess you would say. It's a very Buddhist yeah. idea mm-hmm. that you have to struggle against. And when we say that life is a struggle, that's basically what they mean. You're struggling against this fundamental darkness that if you don't awaken the Buddha within you, if you don't manifest uh, some sort of a, of a vibrant, vital uh, life force, then you can quite easily become overwhelmed by that fundamental darkness. But if you do engage with it, then it inspires you and empowers you. It gives you something, you have something to struggle against, and in, in, in the midst of that struggle, you find beauty and meaning and happiness right. in your life. Yeah. So, so it's not a, it, you know, it's, it's not a, 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 an innocent or a naive kind of practice. It's a practice that really does engage with the tough stuff of life, and right. it acknowledges that there's evil in the world. You know, the leaders of the Sokogakai, you know, they were struggling against the forces of militarism. They were fighting exactly the same kind of battles that we see, you know, people who are battling terrorism today fighting against, if that makes sense. Yeah, you know, I, I call it the human condition, you know, that there's this, this right. place of low frequency and vibration yeah. where most humans yeah. tend to vibrate their energy. And yeah. and we can stay there because it's very familiar. You know, it's yeah, it, it fits, right. fits good. But it doesn't really get you what you want, typically, or or help you to yeah. have peace in in your your life or well being. So to, you know, shift your energy, which sounds like the chanting really takes effect. Not not to mention these meetings, which are fabulous because, um, the this new sort of religion or take on Buddhism, if you will, it celebrates cultural differences, and that's kind of oh, yeah. their lifeblood is what so. I've heard. You know, so right. people from around yeah. the world. You know, you walk into a meeting and. Yeah. There's every color of the rainbow there, which I think is really quite lovely. <laughs> you know? that, yeah, that's that's the really startling thing about the Sokogakai. The Sokogakai is the most uh, ethnically and, and racially diverse religious religious organization in the world. And the way I, the reason I can say that with such confidence is that, you know, although, like for instance, the Catholic Church is certainly unbelievably diverse, if you take its total membership. You know, right. into consideration. Sure. But if you go to any particular Catholic church, there's no way you're going to see the the level of diversity that you would see in any Sokogakai uh, meeting in America. Whatever the racial or ethnic composition of the surrounding community is, you will find that reflected in a Sokogakai uh, discussion meeting. Uh, sometimes it'll be, you know, even more diverse than the surrounding community, right? Because it tends to appeal to people who, uh, you know, who, who celebrate diversity and, you know, who right. want to honor that, that right. aspect of their life. You find a lot of, you know, Japanese uh, uh, men and women married to, you know, uh, spouses of European descent. You find, you know, uh, you find Hispanics. You find, you find people from all everywhere. over yeah. the world. Yeah, Which exactly. I think is so lovely to be, you know, moving this whole, you know, beautiful breath of manifestation because we're all capable of creating a wonderful life for ourselves and which allows us to have the energy to hold space for the world. You know, if we're feeling right, good about exactly. ourselves and yeah. fulfilled, 
and enjoy, then it's so easy to, to bless everyone else and wish them the very same thing. So to yeah. to have that spread around the world so diversely as it has through this, you know, um, through the SGI is, is quite remarkable in such a short period of time, as you said, in terms of the growth of its memberships. Right. Well, it was an idea whose time had come. You know, Nishiren was about 700 years ahead of his time uh, mm-hmm. because he was saying that an ordinary person can become a Buddha in this very body and in this very lifetime at a time when most people thought that in order to become a Buddha, you had to die and be reborn countless times, or you had to die and go to the pure land and be reborn in a condition that, you know, where becoming a Buddha was favorable. At that time, he said that anyone can become a Buddha in this body. And that mm-hmm. also meant that women could become Buddhists. And a lot of his disciples were women and mothers right. uh, and, and even young, young female children. Right. And so, you know, at that time, it was believed that in order to become uh, a Buddha, a woman had to be reborn as a man. And so, you know, that was an idea that, you know, they try, were constantly trying to kill Nietzsche, execute him, they were exiled twice. Uh, so that idea really didn't fully take root. Uh, the Nietzsche Shoshu priesthood uh, in Japan sort of kept the flame alive for about 700 years, but it really isn't until right before World War II that you see the idea really coming into its own. And it really only does that in the Soka Gakkai. The Soka Gakkai is the only uh, Nishiren Buddhist organization that ever really put the teaching to the test. And it said, if this is really what it says it is, then we can set it, we can set it loose on the world and it will spread. You know, it's like those floating seeds that just get taken by the wind and they just go everywhere. And everywhere they go, they take root. And that's really what happened with the Soka Gakkai. Every place it traveled, it took root. And it took root because it took root in people's lives. They actually used it as modern people to transform their lives in a modern way so that they ended up looking, like at the end of the day, they ended up looking more like themselves rather than less. Wow, and that's kind of what happened to you. That's um. exactly what happened to me, yeah. Yeah. So, and I learned, I learned how to do that from them. You know, I'm very grateful. You know, I'm not a member, but I am profoundly grateful for, you know, having been introduced to, you know, a, a, a model of religion that really does work for the, uh, you know, for the 21st century. Yeah, and I, I think it's just, you know, point, as you said, you know, one of the founders was so, f- or of Buddhism, was just so far ahead of his time, and yet we're in a, a really magical space and time now in our in human growth and evolution where we are starting to believe in what we know scientifically is true is that molecules are being affected all the time by our thoughts and our feelings and right. that when we can change that our thoughts and our feelings right. to really match what we want then right. we have this ability to create um our dreams right right well you know the supergaki when they say creating value that's exactly what they mean just what you said Mm-hmm. And they believe, and they practice it, and they show proof of, you know, that it's true, you know, with their actual lives and the changing circumstances of their lives by chanting Namiyoho Renge Kyo. The sound of that, which they chant audibly, it's not a silent mantra, right. it's a, uh, a, a vocal mantra. Right. Uh, and by chanting that, uh, they believe that they... Uh, that they trigger changes in the universe, changes in themselves and changes in their communities and their families and, and you know, in the, the life around them. Mm-hmm. So that 
For instance, one, uh, I, I just spent some time traveling around to various, uh, um, I think so far 13, by the time I'm done, 15 different uh, culture and community centers uh, uh, operated by the SDI and, and, uh, in the United States and in Canada. And many places I've gone, the, uh, the community centers are relatively new, at least by, some, some of them are brand new, and some are, uh, you know, maybe 20, 15, 20 years old, which is young, you know, in the life of like a religious facility or a church. Right. And oftentimes they will go into areas of a city that have been abandoned and where, you know, that are starting to come back. And they'll build a community center there. And the members will tell you that they watched the, the land itself transform around those community centers. And wow. the communities themselves, you know, really regain their vitality wow. and their, uh, their, you know, ambition, their happiness wow. uh, and a sense of community. And they, 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 won't, they won't say it's magic. Like, it's not like they're just sitting there you know, in their little culture center chanting Nam Yohorenge Cho and everything just magically appears. <laughs> they, they believe in, in having faith and taking action. So they're actually out there planting trees, right? Right. Like yeah. in Denver, they planted all these, um, they found uh, this particular type of cherry tree that grows at high altitude, and they planted a whole colonnade of cherry trees in, you know, downtown Denver. So they're actually doing practical, you know, hands-on work to transform those communities. But they will tell you every single one that without the chanting, it wouldn't happen. Wow. I I love that. So, yeah. I love that. We're going to take another break here on the Marie Manu Cherry Show. We are talking with Clark Strand. He's also the author of Meditation Without Gurus, How to Believe in God, Whether You Believe in Religion or Not, and countless groundbreaking articles, including the first comprehensive feature article ever written in English on Internet Spirituality. We'll be right back. Marie Manucheri will be holding a seminar in Hollyhock, Vancouver, entitled Discovering and Dissolving Blockages to Health. This seminar ranges from Friday, October 24th through Sunday, October 26th. You may have had a time in your life when you desperately needed a new way to look at a situation in order to reduce conflict or create change. Shifting energy breaks away patterns and allows everything to become new. Within the birth of new energy, anything is possible, even healing from a difficult disease. Join Marie for this two and a half day course to discover how to unravel old patterns and return to your authentic nature. For more information on how to register, visit our events page at energyintuitive.com. And again, this seminar will be in Hollyhock, Vancouver, British Columbia from Friday, October 24th through Sunday, October 26th. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We bring a unique talk radio blend your way every Friday and Saturday on 1150 KKNW. From pop culture to the paranormal, you get variety in a conversational style. Whether it's UFOs or ESP, angels or the afterlife, Bigfoot or your big dreams, everything is fair game on our show. Join the A-Team of Alternative Talk Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on the station that leads the pack without following the herd. Alternative Talk, 1150 AM. 
If you want to know how to get in touch with Marie or find out what's on her calendar, there's a variety of ways to do so. You could become Marie's friend on Facebook or even follow her on Twitter. Check out Marie's website. There's tons of new features like Chakra of the Month, a live Twitter feed, and three PDFs with extensive exercises for your chakras. You can also sign up for Marie's free quarterly newsletter and also get your questions answered in her Dear Marie column. Simply email Marie your question and she will answer it in an upcoming edition. Marie also will be speaking and signing books throughout the U.S. in 2014. Find out if she'll be in your area on her events page at energyintuitive.com. Tanning, indoors or out, increases your risk of skin cancer, including melanoma the second most common cancer in young adults and the leading cause of cancer death in women 25 to 30. Tanning doesn't make me look healthier. My ambition does. Tanning doesn't make me stand out. My drive does. Tanning can cause wrinkles, age spots, and even melanoma, the cancer that kills one person every hour. And using tanning beds significantly increases your risk of developing melanoma. Tanning doesn't make me glow. My individuality does. Tanning doesn't make me feel better about myself. I got the job. Yeah. My confidence does. Tanning doesn't make you more beautiful. It only makes you more at risk. Stop tanning. Learn more at spotskincancer.org. A message from the American Academy of Dermatology. Would you like to be a Reiki master? Join Marie at the Hyatt House in Redmond, Friday, September 19th through Sunday the 21st. This two-and-a-half-day transformative workshop is open to people at all levels of energy medicine healing knowledge. Completing the course will certify you as a Reiki 1, 2, and 3 practitioner. This is truly a transformative weekend. Enrollment is limited, therefore registration is required. For more information about the Reiki Master Workshop at the Hyatt House in Redmond, visit energyintuitive.com. No shirt, no shoes, no problem. Come as you are. Alternative Talk, 1150 AM. Welcome back to the Marie Manu Cherry Show. We're live here in Seattle. I'll be teaching a Reiki workshop next weekend. So a week from tomorrow um, will be my last workshop of the year. We have a few spots left. If you're interested, it will be at the Redmond Hyatt in Redmond, Washington. Um, so you can just go to the website, energyintuitive.com, and check out all the information about it. And uh, hopefully we'll see you there. As well with all the other people that have signed up, I'm looking so forward to getting to know you, hanging out with you. And helping you um, have a transformative weekend, learning a very beautiful healing art of Reiki. So welcome back, Clark Strand, the author of Waking the Buddha. And um, so there's this fascinating, interesting uh, aspect to this sect of Buddhism, SGI, of of working on manifesting and that it's okay to to want worldly goods in one's life. And when we were off air, you spoke briefly about how um, that was really introduced right after the war, you know, when there was so much suffering in Japan and people were homeless and, of course, had lost many people. And, and I'm sure there was um, all kinds of problems in terms of, you know, diseases and lack of food and all kinds of interesting things. And so they were given permission to actually desire comfort and warmth and food and all the things that modern life um, is meant to give us. Right. Well, you know, World War II is really the crucible in which 
in which this new religious model formed. And it, arguably it wouldn't have happened had it not been for the extreme conditions of, uh, of World War II, and, and specifically the fire bombing of Tokyo, which was the single uh, greatest, most destructive uh, assault, military assault in human history. And so the people who emerged from that, that uh, maelstrom uh, you know, witnessed a, a level of, of collective suffering uh, and deprivation that, that really, uh, you know, has, has rarely been, been paralleled in human history. And they were trying to rebuild their lives, and traditional Buddhism really didn't offer them much, because, uh, for one thing, you know, the, the, the Buddhists of that day had, had really sort of invalidated themselves by supporting the war, so clearly they didn't have the answer. People were looking for something new. Jose Toda uh, emerged from prison as the Soto Gakkai's uh, second president, having had a mystical revelation in prison that the Buddha is life itself, a kind of a fundamental life force that exists within oneself and, and outside of oneself in all of the universe, and that you can unite with and harness that energy by chanting the title of the Lotus Sutra, Namyoho Renge Kyo, and by uh, forming a kind of a partnership uh, with the universe, you can manifest good things for yourselves and others. And that was really the key. Um, we also spoke, spoke uh, during the break about uh, you know, the comp- inevitable comparison some people make to the prosperity churches in, in, the, uh, in America today. And, you know, there is some similarity, but, but I, I think that uh, the real difference is World War II. You know, these prosperity churches are basically telling people, you know, how to become, you know, leaner, meaner, more perfect consumers, right? You know, to, to get the latest products, to, you know, you know get a, a fat retirement account and stuff like that. The people who were uh, creating the Soka Gakkai in the years immediately following of World War II and spreading it from person to person by word of mouth, we're responding to a much gutsier sort of, you know, level of, of chanting for, for worldly desires and, and, uh, and material success. These are people who are completely rebuilding their homes. Uh, some of them had moved from one home to another to another. The founder of the, uh, of the modern Soka Gakkai, uh, Daisaku Ikeda, who is his current president, as a boy, uh, you know, he left his, his, his uh, home was destroyed. Uh, he moved to another home. He had just finished moving the family's property into the home, and hours later a bomb hit it and destroyed everything they had left from their first house. Wow. So this happened repeatedly over and over again. To tell these people that uh, you know desire was the cause of suffering and that Buddhism meant to eliminate desire was basically to tell them that Buddhism didn't have anything to offer them at all. Koda came along and said that the Buddha desires the happiness and health of human beings, and that that's what the Buddha is in the world to do. Mm-hmm. That really inspired people. So they chanted for better health. They chanted for food. They chanted for the very basic things in life. And furthermore, at the bottom of it all was this idea that they were chanting for a better world in which this wouldn't happen. Wow. And so there was this, this tremendous sense of world mission, which, which they call uh, Nishra Buddhists called Kosen Rufu, which is to widely proclaim and spread the teachings. 
But that teaching was something more than a narrow sort of tribal idea of, you know, we're going to make the world into Nishiren Buddhists who chant nam myoho linge Ko and follow this particular set of religious customs and so forth and so on. It's much bigger than that. The idea that they were what they were really spreading was a way for human beings to live in peace with one another and happiness in a world where there was enough to go around and for one person to to win didn't mean that another person had to lose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's really phenomenal and, and very unusual in a religious you know concept and very healthy for us. And I love that it's so international because of, of course, those who might be living in a worn, torn part of the world or, you know, um, struggling in some way, this can help them to shift their vibration and their frequency by by toning this lovely lotus mantra or uh, sutra, I guess is what it's called. And and I I, I watched some videos about the the actual chanting, and and one of them, it said that they keep their eyes open when they chant. Is that common or? Yeah, you know, it's, Everything about the Soka Gakkai is experiential. It's visible. It's auditory. You know, a friend of mine who's a longtime member of the Soka Gakkai and one of its leaders in America says that what he loves about the Soka Gakkai is you see what you get, right? (laughs) It's all right up front. It's all Mm -hmm. right there. Like, you go to a meeting and everybody's chanting, and you can hear everybody's chanting. And then after the chanting... You know, they turn their uh, chairs in a circle, and everybody talks to one another. You can see people. You can hear them talk about what their issues and their problems are. In a lot of ways, it's just the opposite of a setting where everybody, you know, sits with their eyes closed or their eyelids lowered, looking at the floor, you know, silently meditating and not speaking to one another. And even when they chant, they're really, um, you know, there's a kind of a, you know, in most meditative circles, even when you chant, there's not uh, quite the same sense of, uh, you know, collectively pooling one's energy because the whole focus is on an inner experience that isn't really uh, uh, visible to anyone else. Like right. the person can be sitting there meditating and you don't know whether they're meditating or not. I mean, they might just be, you know, making their to-do list, right? <laughs> yeah. I know, and I can I... tell you as a meditator, that's often what happens. <laughs> Sometimes you don't even know yourself if you're meditating, <laughs> you're but if you're right. chanting... You know when you're chanting, right? right. It's, it's, you can hear it. Because right. you can feel it, so, you're, and your eyes are open, yeah. and so you're present, you know, which right. I, I, whenever I've been in church, which has not been often in my life. In fact, my children never attended a church. I've never been to a church. And um, I, I always did not like the part of putting my head down to pray. I, I wanted to actually, in a way, almost have my gaze looking up, you know, connecting right. with source energy and Right, and feeling right. that no, that we're all one, you know, that, right. that we're not servants, that we are all manifestations of the divine universal life, you know, that we are right. irreplaceable. So I just right. I love that whole idea of being awake, that maybe that's part yeah. of their wakefulness, too, of, of the energy yeah. that they're allowing to pour through them. Well, it, it really is an eyes wide open rather than eyes wide shut approach to Buddhism. And I think that that's a, you know, that's a big part of it. I published uh, I published an article uh, in Tricycle Magazine uh, about 11 years ago called um, Born in the USA, Racial Diversity in the Soka Gakkai. And the basic premise was that uh, the Soka Gakkai, uh, you know, it was always in principle a very, you know, diverse sort of organization because, you know, it, its values and its teachings basically preached that. 
but it was only when it came to America in 1960 that that it showed actual proof of that uh, of that belief system. Because when it got here, suddenly you had all kinds of people, and it could really be put to the test. Did anyone become a Buddha? You bet. Because when you went into those rooms, you saw every imaginable kind of person, you know, at those meetings. And so, you know, that was the idea. Well, there was an implicit criticism, of course, uh, in the article, because the style of Buddhism that I practiced and that most of my friends practiced, which was either then Tibetan Buddhism or Vipassana, what's now being called mindfulness meditation, in those centers, all you saw were white faces, Right. Right. So you didn't see any racial mix at all. They really, so much so that uh, one of my friends jokingly referred to it, not as the middle way, but the upper middle way, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, one of the uh, readers of that article wrote in and said, you know, look, when your eyes are closed and you're meditating, all centers look pretty much alike, Right. And that was his defense of the fact right. that there was no racial or ethnic diversity at all in, in, in his center. Mm-hmm. And I call that the eyes wide shut approach to Buddhism, right? Oh, where you just shut out social realities. You're not awake to them. You don't even know they're there. Or if you do, you just ignore them right. and just live in your own little meditative world. Right. And that doesn't really help the world, and arguably, I think it doesn't really help the individual very, very much. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not that there's anything wrong with meditation but that that style of practicing meditation uh, is fundamentally very limited because it can't engage with the realities uh, of modern living. Wow. So the Sokogatai has this very wakeful, eyes-wide-open approach where they're really engaging with the stuff of life. And, uh, you know, a lot of Sokogatai members, you know, had to struggle against racism. Mm-hmm. I went to, right. um, I just spoke at a conference for... Uh, uh, people practicing Buddhism, uh, uh, practicing Buddhism as people of African descent. Uh, mm-hmm. This was at the Florida Nature and Culture Center, just outside of Miami, Florida. And this is, I think, they've had uh, ten conferences like that. And you know, all of the, nearly everyone there was an African American Buddhist. And uh, they were, you know, many of them were talking about how they had used the practice successfully to combat racism in their lives without giving way to hate or resentment. And certainly without being defeated. Now, these were people who had really transformed their lives and educated, in some cases, people who, who before they met them, had been racist, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, who they had actually succeeded in converting some of the people that they had struggled with, you know, the most fiercely. They had actually converted those people to Eastern Buddhism. So, you know, these were remarkable sort of success stories. But the only there's only one other thing I want to add, and that's and you'll have to do it very okay. quickly because we're about to go oh, off the air. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's wrap time. <laughs> well, let's save it for next time. That then. sounds lovely. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing this, you know, modern approach that may actually move into all religions, which is something that you write about and and hope for that we have a more open minded, open eyed. Um, approach to allowing ourselves to live a wonderful life while we bless others so that they may too as well. And, and thank you so much. I wish you the best in your book talks and your travels. Thank you very much. Wonderful talking with you, Marty. Yeah, it was lovely. And again, um, because of the date today, September 11th, we want to send out lots of love and peace to the world. Of course, um, of course, our dear, sweet New York. I'm wishing everyone a, a healthy, happy day and hopefully peaceful memories of you know, now uh, a peaceful time in New York. 
And of course, wishing everyone around the world an open heart and love for each other. Joyful blessings. Bye-bye.